The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. These days and years of preparation for the gospel ministry are very special days. Um, In years to come, probably like myself, you will look back too with much gratitude, with much thanksgiving, and I'm sure with a great deal of affection uh, for your experience here in Westminster. It's easy for me to say to students today, as people said to me in my day, Be sure you relish these days. Be sure you enjoy them. Uh, Be sure that you get everything you can from them. And people say that to you whenever you're under a whole avalanche of papers and reading lists and examinations and assessment. But I'll say it again anyway, because if you learn to savor the atmosphere of this community here, then in days to come you will be richly blessed and you'll look back with much joy and thanksgiving for all that God has been to you as your heart and mind are molded as you study God's word and God's truth. Don't allow Satan to rob you of the blessing and the joy of these days. Because preparing to be a preacher and being a preacher of the gospel is a most wonderful and marvelous occupation. I remember before coming to Westminster as a teacher, uh, teaching a class, teaching biology, and just longing for that class to end, looking forward to the lunchtime as far more than the students did, so that I could have the opportunity to read the theological book I carried in my bag, and then to be called to the ministry eventually, and to be paid to read and study all these volumes which had previously been my spare time hobby. And even yet, uh, when my wife comes into the study with a cup of tea in the middle of the morning, I say to her, isn't this marvelous? Being paid to sit here and to study and prepare to preach, how blessed we are. I'm reminded, I'm serious. (laughs) I'm reminded of the, of the words of Samuel Chadwick. If there's one person in the world I pity, he said, it's the one who has no love for his job. What a drudgery. I would rather preach than do anything else I know in this world. I would rather pay to preach than be paid to preach. It has its price in agony of sweat and tears, but no calling has such joys and heartbreaks, but it is a calling which an archangel might covet, and I thank God that of his grace he called me into his ministry. I wish I had been a better minister, but there's nothing in God's world or worlds I would rather be. I hope and pray that you two come to share that conviction and that enthusiasm for the preaching ministry. 
And perhaps in order to encourage our own hearts today and to help us, we could reflect on what it means to be a preacher of the gospel. And especially what Paul has to say here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. As he reflects on some marks or characteristics of authentic Christian ministry. And there's really a twofold theme to Paul's words in these verses. On the one hand, he describes how the gospel came to them in verse 5. And then in verses 6 and 7, he describes how the Thessalonians received the gospel. And in a very interesting and in a very helpful way, Paul brings together the two parties, the two participants in the work of the ministry. There are the apostles and the hearers, the preacher and the people, the pastor and the congregation. And there is this action and reaction and interaction between them. It's not so much a them and us situation as one of meaningful and affectionate relationship. The very pronouns which Paul uses underscores this personal relationship. Verse 2, we always give thanks for all of you. Verse 5, our gospel came to you. Verse 6, you became imitators of us. Preacher and people are locked together in a dynamic relationship. The word is preached and the word is received. And in that proclamation and in that reception, there is this relationship of love and affection which is meaningful and fulfilling for both parties. And brothers, it's that kind of relationship which you and I should seek to nurture and foster in our churches and in our congregations. We should understand that preaching is part of the pastoral ministry, which brings us into relationship with people to whom we have been called. We're told in Acts 17 that when Paul went to Thessalonica, he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. And what he says here in 1 Thessalonians 1 is that that reasoning and that proclamation was warmly received. Look at the response which the Thessalonians made to the word in verses 6 and 7. Paul says, firstly, they received it in spite of severe suffering. Whatever the nature of their circumstances, the situation wasn't a favorable one for a positive response. They were people who were having a difficult time. Those who preached the gospel as well as those who embraced it and received it were exposed to hostility and to opposition. And I suppose there is a sense in which there is never a favorable time for the proclamation or the reception of God's word. But despite the difficulties, despite the severe suffering, they still received the word. Persecution did not deter the Thessalonians. Paul also says they received it with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. The same spirit which inspired the preaching gave joy to the hearers. The Holy Holy Spirit was at work at both ends of the communication process. So that on hearing the word, they received it with a joy and a delight inspired by the Spirit. 
And wherever the gospel goes, and wherever people respond, there's joy. Joy in heaven over sinners repenting. Joy on earth among the people of God. And that pattern of outward opposition and inward joy is a pattern which is often repeated in the history of the church. Paul says, thirdly, that they became imitators of the Lord and an example to other believers in the region. They weren't just people who made a superficial response to the word. It was clear from their lives and their lifestyles that they were followers of the Lord. They implemented, they obeyed the word in their living, and they became a model to all the other believers in the area. Their exemplary behavior was of benefit to other Christians. Now, isn't that a wonderful response to the gospel? Who said that Christianity was for inadequate people who need a crutch to get through life? Who said it was for wimps and jellyfish who have no backbone or capacity for commitment? You wouldn't have said that in the car park after the morning service at First Christian Church Thessalonica. The people in Thessalonica made a deep-seated Thorough, obedient, vital response to the word. Wouldn't you just have loved to have been pastor of that congregation? And do some of us in the ministry not just pray, Oh Lord, may my people make such a response to the gospel? For isn't it true that many of us in the ministry often bemoan the lack of response? The indifference among our people. Many of our hearers at times appear to remain untouched, unmoved, unchanged by the preaching of the word. They are like ecclesiastical leopards who can never change. How are these people going to be transformed, Lord? What do I have to do? And our very question's wrong. Can I ever hope? to see this kind of Thessalonian response among my congregation. And Paul says that the vital response in Thessalonica was the result of vital communication. And Paul goes on to describe that vital communication which elicited that great response. And he says four things. Number one, he says the gospel came with words. Verse 5, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but it did come with words. It had content. It was verbalized. And Acts 17 fills out for us the content of Paul's preaching. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ he said, Paul showed how that Jesus was the Christ of Scripture. It was a typical, this is that, use of the Old Testament. And the original word for proving means to place beside. He set the fulfillment alongside the predictions. He told the full story of the saving career of Jesus. His birth, his life, his ministry, 
his death and resurrection, his exaltation and gift of the Spirit, his present reign and his future return, his offer of salvation and his warning of judgment. In other words, Paul's preaching centered and focused on Jesus Christ. And it was all based on the opening and the explaining and the proving from the scriptures. It was expository preaching which was Christ-centered. My, what sermons they must have been. How we would have loved to have been there. And to have observed the way in which the apostle chose his text. And linked his theme and concluded with his appeal. And all of it revealing the glory of the person and the work and the perfections of our Lord Jesus Christ. What tremendous sermons and what marvelous preaching. We don't know whether they had a beginning, a middle and an end or not. We don't know what a professor of practical theology would have made of them if he'd been given the task of evaluating them. We can't say whether they would have conformed to any standardized system of sermon evaluation. Could you have given Paul's sermons marks for style and structure and delivery and language and application and illustration? Or if we had tried to do that, would we not have been more likely to have thrown our notebooks away and been transfixed as we listened to the apostle, absorbed and gripped and mastered by these wonderful themes concerning the person of our glorious Savior. The preaching was with word. It had content. And one of the modern criticisms of preaching is that it has too much content. We're told 20 minutes is too long for a sermon. Anything beyond 12 minutes is too demanding for the modern hearer. And you remember how Dr. Lloyd-Jones tried to analyze the situation in his book on preaching in his own inimitable way. The doctor blames it all on the British Prime Minister, Stanley Baldwin. And you might wonder what Stanley Baldwin had to do with preaching. Apparently, Baldwin lived in an age when there were great and brilliant orators. And Baldwin had limited oratorical skills. So in order to prove himself against such opponents... Baldwin cultivated an alternative style, a chatty, conversational approach, very low-key, very informal. And this style of speaking spread and affected both the pew and the pulpit. And according to Dr. Lloyd-Jones, it caused the demise of lengthy and well-presented sermons. Now, I don't know whether that's a valid thesis or not, but I am convinced that what Lloyd-Jones goes on to say is quite correct. And it's simply this, that great preaching is produced by great themes. And it's only as we grasp the great themes, as they grip us and master us and move us, that our preaching will be effective and that it will be life transforming. <clears throat> the gospel came to them in word. We must not acquiesce in the contemporary disenchantment with words. Words matter. 
because the gospel has a specific content. It must be articulated. It must be verbalized. That's why we take trouble in our choice of words. You and I need to be sure that Christ and the great doctrines of Scripture which magnify his person and his work are the central themes of our preaching. The gospel came with words. But not simply with words, says Paul, but also with power. Because words alone do not guarantee impact. It would be great if they did. However many words, however correct and true and orthodox, they do not guarantee a response. Blind eyes, hard hearts do not appreciate the gospel. But the characteristic dimension of Paul's preaching was that his words were full of dynamic, explosive, transforming power. And the power was such that minds and hearts were penetrated and wills were transformed. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Paul's sermons were explosive devices, packed full of spiritual semtex, which blew open the hearts and the minds of the Thessalonians. Acts 17 tells us that some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. And Paul's powerful preaching had this impact on different groups of people. And it appears to have happened amazingly quickly. Some commentators believe that Paul's ministry in Thessalonica lasted only for four weeks, covering three Sabbaths. Others think it went on for six months. Whether four weeks or six months, the impact was phenomenal. It was powerful preaching. And aren't we encouraged as we continue to read in the history of the church that God continues to bless his servants? And we can read of many examples of powerful preaching, especially in days of revival. God has been pleased to anoint his servants with special power, special effectiveness, great liberty in their preaching. I used to be minister of Kells Presbyterian Church in County Antrim in Northern Ireland. <clears throat> the congregation there was formed in 1873 following a great revival in Ireland, which began in 1859. And the adjoining village to Kells is called Connor. And the Presbyterian congregation there is the mother church of the Kells congregation. And in the middle of the last century, the, the minister in Connor was a man called Mr. Moore. And he had labored and preached in Connor for over 20 years and saw only modest results. But one Sunday in his Bible class, he appealed to some of the young men there, as he put it, to simply do something more for the Lord. And a few young men, unsure of what they could do, began a Sunday school in a schoolhouse at Tanny Break, a couple of miles out of the village. And they invited local children to attend. And after a few months, something wonderful happened. Because not only was the schoolhouse full of children on a Sunday afternoon, but their parents came as well. 
all wanting to know how they might be forgiven and saved. And the lads sent for their minister, Mr. Moore. And with more liberty and more blessing than he had ever known before, Mr. Moore preached the gospel and great numbers were converted. It was one of the first signs of the 1859 revival, which was a time of great blessing throughout the north of Ireland. William Burns was minister in Kilsyth in Scotland in 1839. He wrote a letter once to Robert Murray McShane and said that in his first seven years as a minister, not one person had been converted under his ministry. But all that changed quite dramatically in July 1839 because Burns came out of his home in Kilsyth. He had arranged to have an open air meeting, but it was pouring with rain and the streets of Kilsyth were empty. <clears throat> and as he walked through the town, he was told that the people had assembled in the church building. And when he went there, he found the church packed. And he had to struggle to get through the crowd to get to the pulpit. And Burns saw people there who had never, ever before been in church. And he preached to them, Psalm 110, verse 3. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. And the Spirit of God attended Burns' preaching in a remarkable and amazing way. People were converted in numbers. Oh, we need that power in our preaching today. We need passionate, powerful, spirit-anointed preaching. Brothers, the power is ancient, but the power is also contemporary because the power does not lie with us. It is from God. And the preaching that transforms lives, the preaching that brings about a vital response in our congregations and amongst our people is preaching that is with and that is in the power of the Spirit. The gospel came to them in power. Thirdly, the gospel came to them with deep conviction. And the question is, does this deep conviction refer to the speaker or to the hearers? The older commentators say it is the hearers. The more recent commentators say it is the apostle. I believe the reference is to the preacher. That when Paul preached the gospel in Thessalonica, he did so with certainty, with conviction, with assurance. Paul's preaching was characterized by that deep conviction, that assurance. Because Paul himself was possessed and mastered by his message. Now, those of you who are pastors know that the subjective awareness of a preacher as he preaches is a highly variable thing. It certainly was so with Paul. If his preaching in Thessalonica was with much assurance, then it was a very different story when he was in Corinth. Because in Corinth, he was so conscious of fear and weakness and trembling, he was even tempted to change and to adjust his message so that the Lord had to tell him specifically, don't be afraid, but speak, for I have much people in this city. And whilst as preachers we long for that awareness of deep conviction and assurance, we need to remember again that it does not always lie with us. Because it is God who sovereignly and graciously grants us that deep conviction 
Sometimes emotionally we find ourselves at Thessalonica. And sometimes emotionally we're at Corinth. And sometimes the certainty and the conviction and the assurance come to us as we prepare in the study. And sometimes it's granted to us as we sing the first item of praise or as we lead the congregation in prayer or as we read from the scriptures. But whether we're aware of it or not, there is a deep conviction which also arises simply from the fact that we are faithfully preaching God's word. It is his word which brings the conviction and brings the assurance so that Paul's message was not only powerful in its effect, it was confident in its presentation. He was sure of his message, of its truth, of its relevance, and he was bold in proclaiming it. Sangster says preachers should avoid two errors. One is to say nothing as though it were something. And the other is to say something as though it were nothing. In other words, there is this danger that we handle great and glorious doctrines. We handle our marvelous biblical themes in a lethargic and listless way. And the antidote, says Sangster, is to glow over your sermon. Steep your words and your thoughts and your paragraphs in prayer. And when you preach, preach with ringing, resonant resounding certainty and conviction because the gospel which elicited such a vital response from the Thessalonians was one which was with words with power but also with deep conviction fourthly and finally the gospel came with the Holy Spirit we know that the word and the power and the conviction all spring from the Holy Spirit the truth of the word we preach, the conviction with which we speak it, the power of its impact on others, all come from the same spirit. It is the spirit who illumines our minds so that we formulate our message with integrity and with clarity. It is the spirit whose inward witness assures us of its truth so that we preach with conviction. It is the Spirit who carries the message home with power so that the hearers respond in repentance and faith and obedience. And those three characteristics of authentic preaching, truth, conviction, and power, all spring from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And when a ministry is Spirit-inspired, it yields spiritual results. When I say that our ministries should be in the power and conviction of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean that I'm referring to something invisible and intangible. Because you know how the, the parallel passage in 1 Corinthians 2 speaks about preaching with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And the word demonstration was one used by lawyers in a court of law. That the lawyer presented his case using many words, using different arguments, but then at the climax of his presentation... He would introduce his piece de resistance, documentary evidence, exhibit A, the blood-stained gloves, something visible, something tangible from which he draws his conclusions. And demonstration of the Spirit's power is something which can be seen. 
And when the gospel is received with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, it results, as Paul says here, in people turning to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. There is something demonstrably real and tangible. Changed lives are the convincing and the compelling proof that the ministry is authentic. And that work of the Holy Spirit is necessary to show that God is real, that the gospel which came to them was attended by this conclusive proof. It was with the Holy Spirit. And no church can spread the gospel with any degree of integrity, let alone credibility, unless it has been visibly changed by the gospel it preaches. We need to look like what we are talking about. I'm sure you've heard the story about the lady who began a part-time job selling a diet food called Wait Right. And she went round all her overweight friends and neighbours trying to sell them this product, but with very limited success. She eventually decided to consult her husband. He was also employed in marketing. And she explained to him her failure and her disappointment in selling this wonderful product. And he thought he might help her, so he had a look at all her promotional literature with the before and after photographs. He listened to her rehearsing her sales pitch, and she said to him, what's wrong? Where am I making the mistake? Why do people not buy this wonderful product? Do you really want to know, asked her husband. Well, of course I do, she said. Well, dear, unfortunately, you look more like the before picture than the after picture. Her own figure did not commend her product. And in Thessalonica, the evidence was there to be seen. The lives of the people had been changed. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. And it was that kind of preaching which produced such a great response. And don't we agree that it's the kind of preaching we need in our churches today? Not some intellectual reflection on a topic of academic interest. Not some philosophical speculation on the nature of the universe. Not even a sanctified psychology which focuses exclusively on human frustrations and anxieties. But a spirit-empowered gospel delivered by men who have a deep conviction and an assurance that it can result in lives which are turned around, lives which are changed, lives which are transformed by God's grace. And brothers, you and I have this amazing honor of being called to preach in that way. Don't settle for some half-hearted orthodox exegesis which leaves your people unmoved and unchanged. Don't ever make the mistake of going into the pulpit and preaching in an unenthusiastic, anemic way which devalues the importance and the necessity of the gospel. Let your preaching be not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. 
Just one other point we shouldn't miss in this passage. Because it was not just the manner of the preaching which was important, but also the manner of the men who did the preaching. In the second half of verse 5, Paul says, You know how we lived among you for your sake. Allegations had been made against the apostles. They were denounced as itinerant charlatans who were guilty of deceiving poor and unsuspecting and uninformed people. The critics said, look at that man, Paul. Here today and gone tomorrow. A four-week wonder. He's nothing but a con man. He's a deceiver. And by bringing their character into disrepute, they had hoped to neutralize the message of the gospel. And that's why Paul defends his behavior. The integrity of the gospel was at stake. And Paul appeals to what the Thessalonians knew to be true about him. You know, he says, how we lived among you for your sake. Verse 6, you became imitators of us. Literally, the Thessalonians mimicked or copied the apostolic team. They copied their godly ways and their characteristics. The speech, the action, the deeds of the apostles were reproduced in the Thessalonian believers. And the result was that they in turn became examples to others. By the way they lived and behaved, the gospel began to spread through the whole region. And the catalyst to the whole reaction was that the Thessalonians knew how we lived among you for your sake. It's awesome and it's frightening, but it's true. People are going to copy you. People are going to imitate you for good or for ill. And God wants you to be exemplary so that through you and through those to whom you minister, the gospel can spread. There's a little book entitled Power Through Prayer by E.M. Bounds, which many of you know and which is often quoted. The first chapter is entitled Men Needed, and this is what it says. Men are God's methods. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. The man makes the preacher God must make the man. The messenger is more than the message. The preacher is more than the sermon. The man, the whole man, lies behind the sermon. Preaching is not the performance of an hour. It is the outflow of a life. And that's something I should never, ever forget. What you are what I am in myself is more important than anything I do. Let me finish by quoting you some words from the end of Bonner's Memoirs of McShane. I find these words challenging and moving because Bonner writes about McShane after his death. There has been one among us who, ere he had reached the age at which a priest in Israel would have been entering on his course, dwelt at the mercy seat as though it were his home, preached the certainties of eternal life with an undoubting mind, and spent his days and nights in ceaseless breathings after holiness 
and the salvation of sinners. Hundreds of souls were his reward from the Lord ere he left us. And in him we have been taught how much one man may do who will only press further into the presence of his God and handle more skillfully the unsearchable riches of Christ and speak more boldly for his God. Is that not the very reason why we're here? Is that not the very reason for the existence of this seminary? To glorify God by forming ministers of the gospel who are specialists in the Bible, whose understanding of the word of God has produced in their hearts holy affection for their Lord and who in their interpretation and proclamation of the scriptures lead Christ's church in faithful worship and in global ministry. May God, by his grace, make us to be such men.